for love and design the podcast hi welcome to for love and design our podcast about innovation technology progress design and creativity i'm your co-host ila together with master of organic design thinking ross and our special guest of today author and ai theorist neil thank you for being here Nice to see you, Neil. Likewise, Ross. World likewise. traveler. <laughs> My God, nice to get you in one place. Yes, it's amazing. We're able to meet here in Dubai and in this amazing setting uh, at Podster. So today we're going to talk about something very of the moment and controversial, not just hot and relevant. I'm going to start before diving in with reading a paragraph that is, I think, a good intro to what we're going to talk about. A glimpse into a possible near future. Here we go. In the year 2030, we meet Ava, a final year student at the New Architectural Institute. Her day begins not with pens or paper, but by fine-tuning her neural sync headset. The digital studio materializes around her, a boundless expanse where her thoughts shape reality. Here, Ava crafts structures that defy gravity her designs evolving in real time as the AI Da Vinci X feeds her data from environmental algorithms and urban dynamics. This morning, she's reimagining a sustainable skyscraper, its form shifting like a living organism, adapting to the city's heartbeat. Ava's creations are more than buildings. They are ecosystems alive and responsive, a testament to the symbiotic future of AI and human ingenuity. As you can guess it, we're talking about academia and the future of education and where technology is bringing us, not just as learner, professionals, but especially as students. Neil, you've been a champion of academia thinking, especially now with AI and automation coming towards us. The first question for me is, do you think that current institutions are preparing the right new curriculums given AI and are they preparing students for the new workspace? In a word, no. It's difficult to generalize, but I've been giving, giving talks to a range of different um, audiences from construction companies to architectural firms to organizations like the RIBA, the AIA, and to schools of architecture. And you would have thought that the education would be at the forefront, that education would be really be the cutting edge and be experimenting with these ideas. Actually, my experience has been that the construction companies are more in charge. I was speaking in Madrid to a firm called Ferrovial. It's a giant Spanish corporation, and they have their own avatar called Eva, and they were really taking it seriously. I think some of the companies are now waking up to this, and I've just been invited to give the keynote in June to the RIBA, as a result of a talk I gave last week. So they're waking up. And some architectural practices also are recognizing this. And of course, their clients are also asking for them to be AI aware and so on. But surprisingly, I found that education is the one area where they've been, they're still a bit behind. And to my mind, that's a, that's a potentially disastrous situation because those of us who are working in the field and have been promoting these ideas for a while, were slightly taken aback by how quickly things started developing faster than we thought. And all the predictions about the future have proved to be wrong or proved to be 
too far behind in some senses. Um, Jeffrey Hinton, I don't know if you know him, but he's the godfather of AI, a very interesting uh, character. Um, he actually was going to, st he studied architecture for two days. He studied the University of Cambridge <laughs> for two days. I think it took him two days to change his course. He went into, into natural sciences, but his interest was actually in the mind. And he was, while he was working on the mind, he started developing some AI neural networks and things. And he was the one who really has, has, has pushed us into this new ground. He was the one who was, um, that allowed us to actually generate these images because in 2012 he was showing how neural networks could recognize images much better than any other system and all of a sudden everybody switched to this deep learning neural network technique and all the rest is history in terms of, of, of mid-journey DALI and so on. But anyway, he recently of course resigned from Google because he was alarmed by how quickly things were developing and uh, he especially was alarmed by how quickly AI itself learns we learn one-to-one, -one, but that AI, it can share information with a thousand different computers all at once. And all of a sudden, we are thrust into a future we never expected to happen quite so quickly. So everyone's slightly alarmed by the speed of everything. His, uh, the future is upon us earlier before we thought. And that means that we have to really pay attention and really rethink things very quickly. And academia is right at the forefront of this. And I wish that it were more in tune with these things. Yeah, I was saying this morning with Ross that I think education, and I'm glad you brought it up, being quite dangerous, right? It's, it's very high risk for an individual to invest a number of years into education, not knowing whether that education is giving you the right toolkit, right? Imagine you're investing three, four, five years, six years even into education, and that's a long time, especially in this ultra-fast development we have in technology. I don't know if it's the right choice nowadays. Ross, what do you think? Depends how you define architecture, because if you look at the current status quo, I remember my son studying at the AA, and he was always complaining that they never taught him any of the, the basic tools of how to build a, an extension or whatever it takes. And remember, there's a lot of architects out there that's their job, that's their livelihood. It's not the big practices like, you know, Zaha and so on, which, you know, have such a incredible inertia that it's not really about any one individual anymore. They're almost like pixels of AI in a sense. So there's, you know, it depends how we look at this. I think if we're looking at the bigger picture, the transformational picture of the general mutation of society into whatever we're dreaming now, then we need to understand how that connectivity between the input, which is the, the mind, being a student, let's talk about students, and then having some comprehension at least of how that construction can be made instead of always this, oh, somebody will figure it out. So that I think it'll, you need the kind of Einstein factor, somebody who's got this great sense of awareness and you know this sort of intuition that something could be made. I mean, I, that's enough uh, to start that act. Would you agree? Maybe I could just go back to the point that at the very beginning of the discussion, when Eva mentioned this designing something, I would question whether we have quite the same approach towards things in terms of the idea of design. I think when we're working with AI, I think it's more a kind of, it's a collaborative venture. And I think that the, the, we need a new lexicon for, for what we're looking at. It's increasingly searching. 
and increasingly searching for outcomes, which are not, so it's not designing designs, it's something else. And you're working with this tool, which is opening up the possibility of, of, of the options and, and expanding. It becomes a prosthesis to our imagination. I want to go back briefly to the curatorial editing uh, skill set that we all need. I feel like personally, uh, and I don't want to sound too unmodest about it, but I, I personally feel like I, I have a, a genuine good eye and it, it converged through my background, right? What I studied, uh, what I was exposed to when I grew up, and then obviously working with Ross that helped a lot informing my editing and curatorial skill set. How do you think we can implement in practice something into the educational system that allows students to develop that side of working? Well, you know, we don't teach that kind of thing, right? Yeah. It's kind of, it, you absorb it in some way, but it's not explicitly taught. There are no rules of, of composition. You, you've got to pick it up almost by osmosis almost. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not so, so, so sure that everybody gets it either. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that it, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite how, how sure how you do define it, but to have a good eye, it, it, it's, it's a form of intelligence that is not, not everyone has. Um, um, but for sure, I think the shift is towards that, the curatorial side of things. I've noticed, for example, I don't know if you know Lev Manovich, who is the leading kind of uh, theorist of new media. He was brought up, taught, trained as an artist and is writing books about new media. And now he's generating works. Uh, and because you can do that now, because these tools allow you to take charge of things in a new way. Well, I've, I've been following what you've been doing. And I like that pullback that I was talking about earlier. You know, this, this mix of the, you know, the sort of organic and the linear and then other dimensions to it. But it was, it's more about this thing where... What you just said was very interesting for me because in the past, if you shifted your profession, it was really hard work. And I, I'm just thinking that what I love about architecture, and we're talking still about education here, is that within the definition of what means architecture, because it's such a huge, expansive bandwidth, uh, that there are professions within architecture. I've always maintained, because I always employed architects in my studio, never designers, because architects are better educated. They have a better skill set. They, they have different ways to communicate what they do. And I, I, I think architecture is a great incubator for all sorts of thinking, movies, uh, you know, whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, so that's... Maybe within education, there's an opportunity for, for newborn students to even find multiplicity, like a multiverse within, uh, you know, an existing scenario. Um, uh, maybe what you're trying to describe is, um, uh, can be niched down into um, the context of exposure, right? Maybe an architect is exposed to a broader diversity of uh, things, topics, subjects, and, and maybe even courses, and therefore why maybe architectural students are better than design students. Two of the issues of architectural design that I edited were based on the fact I noticed that architects were moving into different territories. One was space architecture, a number of architects working for NASA and so on. But the more recent one was something that uh, we called 3D printed body architecture. We noticed that those working for Iris van Herpen a lot of the people like Neri Oxman were trained as architects. And um, so we saw, well, I saw this as a form of other architectures. And I think 
the problem in some sense is we too narrowly look at architecture and connect it to buildings. I think that design, this is actually Paola Antonelli, that's her thinking, that architecture is part of a broader spectrum of design. But what architects do have, which is kind of interesting, I think they've got a, they've got a particular skill set that is actually quite marketable outside the domain of architecture. Uh, the idea of, of designing and thinking three-dimensionally, understanding material behavior, which is quite advanced in architecture. And, you know, those who can, they can move into fashion and all sorts of things, architects. And I think this is the real potential. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I would like to see architecture redefined beyond that narrow bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I quite like, maybe I should be careful what I say with Ross, but I quite like the notion of design. I, I was teaching at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, and I, I, I like that idea of, 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 of seeing it in that way. Now, what is interesting is, is that when you work, at least when I work with Midjourney, I can take the same prompt that I, works for buildings, and I just change building and I put in handbag or I put in jewelry or I put in, you know, whatever, um, a fashion outfit, and something comes out which is extraordinary. My problem, though, is that I have to, I'm never quite sure um, whether it's good or not. And I have to, if I do a fashion piece, I have to ask one of my, the, the people, that those I know working in the field, which one is, is working. But I, I think it, the, these tools also show us how we can actually broaden that approach. Well, because these are sort of art-based subjects, aren't mm. they? They, they? They have no boundaries, they are whatever they need to be. And a lot of people who've come through my studio, like Yulia Kerner or Mark Fornes, for example, uh, they come through a design studio, but in a studio which nurtures this freeform thinking uh, to try, you know, which is the interrelationship between material structure and, and ideas. I'm proud of that. I think that's really great. And I think there needs to be more of an exchange between uh, what is a design mind. It's not Design mind is not relative, re related strictly to a commercial activity or a particular scale. No, we always say that design is into everything. Oh, you know, nice. machine, when you yeah, design yeah. machine learning, you're designing. When you cook, you're, you're designing. When you think, mm -hmm. you're designing. So yeah. absolutely, the, the, the act I, you know, of I, creation. I think, I, no, I totally agree. And I, I don't think it needs to be just form either. It can be systems. You know, And I, I think that the, the visual imagination you get from been trained in the visual arts actually allows you to conceptualize and see things in a certain way. Architects always sketch, you know, diagrams and things. It's, they, they see it visually. And I'm always struck by, for example, um, one of the, the, the philosophers or theorists that had a huge influence on me was Manuel de Landa. And he was, he was, he was a, trained as a filmmaker. And he was able to, I think, visualize things and see systems in operation. And it struck me that actually that that is, for example, uh, TED talks were 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 conceived of by a designer architect, right? And it's thinking at that level too. Yeah, and each one of us have a different way of visualizing, as you say, um, well, and contributing because it's the yeah. bigger picture. It's not again, it's not about the individual anymore. And especially if if one is open sourcing everything, even if it's through social media, you know that idea that some kind of way of thinking that you have, whether it's a written word, the way you articulate that, or I agree with you completely that I think that maybe we find new ways to communicate. Mm. This mm. is what made the greats of the past is that they could, they could speak, they could draw, they could paint. I mean, it's the Leonardo factor, you know, but of course we, 500 years later, we have incredible digital potential in there. And I think it would be fundamentally wrong, even the people sort of at, at the older phase, if you like, to not 
take stock of that. One of the things I always say when I'm talking to, to architectural practice and things is that really what we need to design right now is not another building, but the very future of the discipline. 100%. And designing the education of how we get there is fundamental. I mean, I'm deeply fascinated, for example, with uh, Greek history and ancient um, Egyptian history and Roman history uh, from a philosophical point of view, but also how they structured because they were the first to design a city, right? The Acropolis, they 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 created urbanism and the very first of what is today's society, right? Well, you know, I was talking to this group in the Athenaeum, a very strange <laughs> institution in London, very crusty, but it's kind of interesting. And someone was talking about the creativity of architects. And, and I, controversial there, I said, well, I'm not so sure we're quite as creative as we think we are. You know, there is a canon of architecture. You know, you've got to fit within the canon. It's got to be a little bit like Zaha or, or Norman Foster or, or Brem Koolhaas or Herzog de Morin, whatever. Not the same, but a little bit like that. And in fact, actually, you find that actually, even when there, you break the canon, like, for example, Frank Gehry, the Guggenheim, he ends up repeating himself in some senses. So we're yes. all kind of following in some Semi -boring. way. Semi-boring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're not really being that creative. If you do something completely outlandish, you design a building like a pineapple, you know, they'd say, I, I think you should do something else, not architecture. <laughs> but you know, so we, we are, we, we, we're not as creative as we, as we think we are, but we've got to think outside the box right now. And that, that to my mind, you know, actually my best student, um, he was working on neuroscience and AI, got the prize at, at FIU for the best master student. He's now working in the metaverse. He's thinking creatively. He's hosting uh, conferences for medics and things. And that's what I think we should be thinking about, how we could operate in different sort of ways, not mimicking forms, but really working in a new way and, and grasping the, the possibilities of what's been afforded well, by this. It's opening up new possibilities. The yeah. dimensions of creativity in society. I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by the music business, right? I think, I, I think it, because it, it's, it's running at an incredibly fast pace and new names come up and new forms of expression of music keep coming up and then very quickly they become established. I mean, it's not that it negates the past. I mean, there's the, the, still the greats of the past exist. It's just that it's running at a really interesting pace, partly because it's in tune with its audience, you know, its younger audience. I mean, architecture is such a slow burn, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's at the big level, it's super corporate, super governmental, super, super, you know, and how does one influence that? You know, you can only influence that with with a certain, I think, salient need. I have a background in, in, in the Renaissance because I was working on the translation of Alberti. Right? And I think it's important to recognize that all those individuals, Brunelleschi, Alberti, um, Leonardo and so on, they were, they were innovators. They were revolutionaries in their own time. They were changing the world completely. Um, I mean, Alberti, like he, he's, he was the first person to really write in Latin, in, in Italian, to introduce Italian as a, as a proper language. You know? it's a, so I, I think that um, when you look at history, you've got, to, you've got to think about how things were people pushing things in a certain way. I, and I always think that the past and the future need to be connected in some way. They are connected. You know? Wolf Pricks gave, gave a lecture once in SIAC, and he's, the title of the lecture was, In Two Days' Time, Tomorrow Will Be Yesterday. And I think that's really important. And, and I think from that perspective, when you, you were, we were talking about the future, but I think we need to talk about the future perfect. I, I always think you've got to put your head on the line before the line has been drawn. You've really got to commit yourself and imagine what's going to be there and be there in advance. Because if you're stuck in the present, you're never going to, going to move forward for a, for a world where, where things are changing so quickly. That's the challenge of education right now. We are, we are seeing history in the making. And I mean, 
I, let me just, as an anecdote, I have to say that, that my problem, I think, with a, lot of with a lot of educators is that they were taught something or they studied, let's say, Locobusia 30 years ago, and they, they're continuing to kind of t say the same thing. There was once, once a story I was told once of a professor who, when he was young, he would pack out the auditorium and everyone would love what he was saying. And towards the end of his career, there would be like six people in the front row and that was it. And his comment was, I don't understand this. I'm giving exactly the same lectures I used to give. So the, the point is that education has got to move with the times, it's got to change, it's got to adapt. And it's so slow, and so it, slow. Well, yeah, I'm a, I, I love what you just said. I'm a fan of Yuval Noah Harari and I love Amadeus and 21 Lessons for uh, the 21st Century. And mm. he's the only one that very clearly said, we cannot teach geography anymore. Mm. Because it's irrelevant. Now you can go on Google and know exactly where mm. something mm. is. I would immediately go in defense of the older Leonardo, but I'm not, uh, because that's sort of self-serving. I would go for the younger one. And I would go for the younger one because when I went to Da Vinci, I went specifically to Da Vinci. I'd put my hand in the font where he was christened. I, I went to try and absorb something of, of uh, Leonardo when I, when I was down there. And something that struck me was absolutely incredible is that you could touch the stone, you could walk amongst olive trees that he saw, you, you could see the clouds, the shapes of the clouds and the, the color of the sky that he saw. Nothing has changed in a Sugimoto sense, this, you know, this thing, nothing's changed. And I just think, what are those inputs for a young mind that had no advantages, I mean, you know, in a sense, other than his awareness, this kind of hyper-awareness. How does one de develop a, a hyper-awareness? And if you took a walk with him when he was young, oh man, I mean, if you could then go back in time in a Star Trek way and you just say, hey, this app, look, this app will tell you how many trees are on that hillside by just pointing it at it. I mean, it's incredible. Or, or this leaf, you don't need to know what this leaf is because it will tell you. I mean, isn't that incredible how you give a mind, if we could develop minds like that, that, that are so open um, that, that anything goes. I mean, and it's stored, by the way, it's not disposable. One of the things I don't like about today is everything seems very disposable. And how do you arrest that and retain uh, that information? Yeah, I, lo I, I love this, what you're just saying. And yesterday I was meeting these futurists and I just naturally said in the middle of a conversation, oh yeah, I posed that conversation with ChatGPT because I wanted to think about it for another couple of days and then went back to it. And he stopped me and said, hang on a minute, you are... Can, do you realize what you're just saying? You're posing a conversation with ChatGPT, then take two days off and then go back to it. I mean, just which is relating to what you just said, this capability of retaining, pausing onto something, but it's still there and then go back into it. And, and the access of information that we should be giving to young minds. I mean, everybody refers to the ingenuity and curiosity of our kids, right? Whether it's Steve Jobs or even Tony Fidel or even Jeff Bezos in the latest uh, episode with Lex Friedman, everybody refers to this early stage of a young individual being so naively exposed and, and able to experiment, right? How can we implement this very concept into education today? How, because it cannot just be of the child. And I do agree that we should start early on teaching kids higher level of education. Well, 
I, I was sorry, my mind my mind was wandering just now when we were talking about these things about ChatGPT. I mean, I, I just a, a brief aside. I, I, I was uh, this semester with my students. I, I thought I can't set them an essay because they'll go to ChatGPT and it'll write it for them. You know? So, so I thought, well, I'm going to set them a, a challenge: create a video and um, use as many forms of AI to, in, in, inventively to produce some kind of comment. Um, and I thought that was a great idea. It failed in some senses, and a lot of them went, went, did produce a video. They went straight to ChatGPT for an answer, which actually wasn't a very imaginative answer. And I'd been talking, I'd been trying to be subversive in all, everything I'd been talking about the whole semester, and they got this rather standard answer coming out, which I thought, okay, I don't do this again. I need to rethink this. But I, and, and most of them said, well, you know, the real failure of AI is it hasn't got emotions. It's never, you know, we're way superior. Well, I'm not so convinced that we're so superior in that respect. And, but the best students who were actually thinking creatively with AI rather than just using it. Exactly. They said, well, actually, you know, this is a crisis because actually it's going to be able to simulate emotions. Now, the danger down the road is that we're going to get AI that's going to be friendly with us we're going to, and so friendly, we're going to probably have more better connection with AI than with our personal emotions. And we're probably going to have robotic sex toys and God knows what else. And that's where the crisis is going to be. And I think, you know, it's being able to, and I thought it was a great answer. You know, they were really thinking creatively about these sort of tools. So, I mean, it's, so I think in the end, it's, it's how you work with these tools rather than just using them for, for the answer and so on. Yeah, I totally, totally, totally agree. I mean, two things from what you just said. Um, First of all, I strongly agree with you that it, it it's in us to be able to collaborate with the machine. It's not the machine that needs to learn how to collaborate with us. It's the other way around. And um, I'm enjoying this period of working with AI uh, in our practice because I um, sort of fine-tuning my way of collaborating with ChatGPT, um, particularly not not so much Dali and Midjourney and, or Stable Diffusion. And 100% ChatGPT lacks a lot of uh, imagination. Our new practice is called Beyond Design Beyond Imagination. Going beyond imagination is on us. So I have uh, those two running, ongoing uh, conversation um, with ChatGPT, especially about creation and design. And I always correct the output that it gives. And I said, listen, I think this is very banal. Let me do something on Photoshop. I'll do a quick collage and then I, I feed it back to you and you tell me what you think. So that mm. I go back and forth. It's this mm. kind of iterative design. She mm. does something very, she is always, always a she, sorry, um, an image. And I said, oh, that's so banal. Let me do something with it. And then I go back and I said, oh, and she comes back very responsive. So we have this ongoing back yeah. and forth. Yeah. And the thing is, this capability of retaining the information and keeping it, now she knows where I want to go. So now the mm -hmm. outputs she gives me are improving over time mm -hmm. because of course it's machine mm -hmm. learning. Mm -hmm. So slowly we are both feeding each other and moving mm -hmm. each other, growing together. It's this growing mm -hmm. together with the machine which I find really deeply mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. And sorry to conclude briefly, but um, when you talk about this emulation of emotion, right, and being able to fool us, I think one of the biggest failure of X Machina as a movie, which I love, is this fact that the machine was able to fool the boy because she was mimicking emotionality. I always strongly believe that the Turing test should be performed by a woman, for example, because I feel that women have a genuine um, 
natural sixth sense to certain things. So for example, in terms of ma machine mimicking emotion, I think we might be able to detect better whether something is genuine and authentic and something is slightly uh, fake. I just wanted to say that historically in design, because of course you, you, I've been through, um, you know, started in the 70s, so we got a lot of decades to cross-reference and relate to. But one of the things that I was always taught is never to say it's a mm. So you don't say it's a camera because that already hijacks your perception. You know, if it's a recording, image recording device, then that's, a, that's another thing. It's that the language needs to change. You can't say vacuum cleaner because it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. So this is what's stultifying the sort of creative expansionism that we're trying to promote. You know, and it, 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 it needs reductionism too. It needs to be really boiled down to some kind of residue because it, to try and avoid the complexity, because the complexity for a lot of people is off-putting. You can read anything that I've ever said, and I've always said that I really love complexity. And I said it almost as a counterforce against all the Bauhausism and all that sort of thing that, you know, minimalism without meaning is just cheap. You know, and at least formal expression, expression with form pulls you in. There's something about it that touches your emotions and it touches you unilaterally and globally, I feel, because, you know, it wasn't very long ago that we lived in a very primitive way. I mean, you go back 10, 12,000 years. I mean, we didn't have anything like we have. So it's this sort of singular material, four materials and whatever it was, and people made the best of that uh, in whichever way. And I just, how do you suppress certain aspects in order to inflate one's deeper, deeper resource of uh, instinct? What is, a, what is a 21st century instinct? I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? You know, okay, you can smell the air and think it's polluted, but that, I mean, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about creative instinct you think mm. and when you were talking about iris's work and the whole thing i mean we can visualize it you know is it is it fashion i'm not sure i mean it, this is great because it's breaking all those sort of boundaries and rules and i think mm, in the right hands that could be translated into some form of enclosure because really what is it about is it about lightness is it about conformity and is it a form of new couture? Could that influence some other aspect? Could it influence the car industry? I don't know. I mean, it's really interesting, this cross-fertilization. And certainly what I've always done and what we're now doing now with Dionde is to expand that, is this idea of massive cross-referencing across everything so that you, you're almost building kind of new categories in the interrelationship between transport, terrestrial, air-based, architecture, movement, and uh, all of those factors. I mean, that's not pie in the sky. And I think that, you know, we were, you were mentioning some of the questions that you wanted to pose today, and you just think we were talking about, do we try and encourage uh, students to maybe look back at the work of Bucky Fuller, to Spaceship Earth, because it really is Spaceship Earth now, isn't it? I mean, let's face it. Uh, so it's like, there was something very eccentric about that and, and very military-based because, of course, he was heavily funded by that. But still out of that came something that seems incredibly relevant today if it was augmented. So I, that is against the grain of 
the Guggenheim, <laughs> uh, which is artistic expression. Um, and it's going more towards a kind of an authoritative approach of how to use materials and resources for the for the common good, you know. Yeah, there is a degree of smartness. I mean, uh, a lot of things that, from what you just said uh, certainly goes back to what you said at the beginning, the need for a new lexicon, 100%. No. I was just thinking exactly the same, Spaceship Earth, exactly. And we were talking about this, you know, whether it should be, we should use the, word, use the word design or whether it should be generating, all these different things. And I completely agree with the notion about the camera. In fact, with my students, I used to say, um, don't talk about this as a room. Talk about it as a cocoon and don't talk about it as a space. Think about it as a zone. Just, just by using different terminology, you open your mind to other possibilities. Well, you know, if you bring it down to a quantum level, nothing exists. Apparently, we don't even sit on the chairs we're sitting on. You know, we are not touching them. And I, I can't get my head around that because, of course, I'm, I've been involved in a, a physical world, you know, for all my life. But, I, you know, once you start to get into these other realms, uh, the action of one thing or one person or something here has a parallelism to the duplication of that, parallel words. Things are happening on a daily basis, you know. We were talking yesterday about the fact that they have managed to communicate with a, with a sperm whale. I think it's a sperm whale. They've had a 20-minute exchange, whether that's a conversation or not, I don't know, and how that will impact on our potential to speak to aliens. But, you know, we're on a planet with aliens already, you know. So this this thing, I found that magnificent. In fact, you and call it, alien intelligence and oh, not I love the artificial oh. intelligence. No, I think this is this is almost the, the biggest problem right now in terms of our perspective is that we anthropomorphize everything, right? Yes. Mm. What if you were to flip that round? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, please. So I was uh, with Arturo in, in Shuzhou and then I went around the world, eventually I went to Poland and I was talking about the second Copernican revolution. Now, mm. I think we've got to recognize that we are not the center of intelligent life entity in the universe and rather than adopt our perspective and look down at AI and say it can't do what we can do whatever well we already know it knows 10,000 times more than, than we do exactly chat GPT what if you were to adopt the perspective of, of, of AI yeah. exactly yes. you know and then you'd be put in your place um, yes. and then we would be able to understand our true significance and I think that's an important thing to take us outside of our comfort zone and challenge things it's and this power of abstraction being able to put ourselves into abstraction what you were just be, uh, referring to universe it's so abstract matter is so abstract right I think that's the point of differentiation I think this is uh, it's going to separate the men from the boys it's those those people who have this whether you call it openness or they just have an expansive enough mind that they are not restrained by myopia of anything around them it's I've reached a point in my own life where I cannot fundamentally tell you whether this is better or worse than something. I really, it's such a, it's such an incredible moment where everything has been just blown apart. It's been exploded, and I, I'm, I'm really excited by the the concept that this will affect everything we look at, design, the whole thing. But it's, it's on a broader system. It's, it's, it's more planetary mm -hmm. in a, in mm -hmm. a sense. So you know, if you can get away from it, if you can get away from it all so you you just think big i mean what's wrong with that and going back to education i think uh we're running out a little bit of time so i wanted to really ask the very last question on education education and creativity um do you think that because many are skeptical still right uh especially in the in the old establishment of things whether it's architecture design or so on especially uh, over the last 12 months 
you see a mind shift, but still there's a lot of skepticism. Do you think that working with AI more and more will eventually flatline and create too much homogeneity of creative output? Potentially, yes. <clears throat> I mean, this was happening with my students. They were just going to ChatGPT and, and it was giving them the same answer. But the, if you use it in the right way, it opens up new horizons. And I, I think it goes back to this kind of question. We talked about open-mindedness. And I was, earlier on, I was talking about this Peter Cook, you know, 80 going on 18, that, that open-mindedness. And I, I always, always struck me as interesting that Peter Cook was the one who brought Gordon Pask into the AA, you know, this amazing uh, cybernetic thinker. And it was a designer who brought it in. And that's the kind of imagination you need to have to not follow the, rule, the rules, but to open up things and challenge things and, and renegotiate things. I mean, and you have to be adaptable. You have to be adaptable. I think this, in the end, is what's going to save us, is the fact that... Um, no matter what happens, the, the human mind, according to the neuroscientists, is plastic, is able to adapt to all sorts of things. And it's those who can adapt quickest um, to an ever-changing world are the ones who are going to survive. There was, I remember, and I'm trying to remember who it was now who said this from uh, in, in some ancient Greek philosopher who was saying, basically, if you look at a tree, it's the tree that can flex with the wind that survives. It's the tree that's, that's brittle, that can't flex and they, the, the things break off. So we have to, I think, remain supple and, and open-minded and, and, and pliable. And, and then I think we, 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 we will use this tool and we will find unbelievable new avenues that nobody's even imagined yet. We have to start young. I think it's ridiculous to go to university at 18. I think it's just far too late. I think we need to pull it all way back, you know, especially what children are exposed to. You know, you've got children who can navigate now at the age of three or four, whatever it is on a, on a, on a phone. I mean, instead of arresting that, I think you just, just let that all out. And, and, you know, our daughter's in this lovely little monocle, whatever, and they have the building blocks and the bits and bobs. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, you know, wow, well, it's got to be more than that. You know, I mean, it started all young, 10. Wow, what a new, what a future we'd all have, wouldn't we? You know, and you wouldn't get any smarminess or, or anything coming back at you as an educator. You wouldn't have anybody, what does he know? You wouldn't have any of that because there's no, no true arrogance in, in younger kids. There's not. So I think there's that thing where you, the old and new could really coalesce in some kind of really incredible way. You know, they say, in fact, that the future of collaboration is with multi-generational groups. It's not even multi-ethnic. It can be multi-ethnic and multi-generational. Uh, but how incredible that would be. You know, uh, so, you know, we talk about putting a child into a, a school or a kindergarten where there's multiple languages. I mean, that's that's par for the course today. So I th and, and it's promoting adaptation, right? Yeah. Because it needs to survive in a totally different new language. And um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but when I'm asked, I mean, you know, just very briefly, when I'm asked what I want to do in the future, I don't say I want to design X or this or I just irrelevant. I, I'd like to form a foundation where I can have people like astronomers or yourself and who have this incredible augmented outreach of different people. Different disciplines, yeah. different cultural backgrounds. And that's why we love Dubai. You, 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 anything that is piloted here is already exposed to almost any nationality out there. And that's so relevant, right? We, we can't think of... I don't know, uh, uh, when Brexit happened, there was the very famous uh, poster, No Man is an Island. Uh, 
we're certainly, we are no, no man is an island even now with technology and AI and whatever. We need to come together with different cultural background, with different stories, with different uh, intake outputs, capability of, of learning the technology. And um, I know universities, they have students from all around the world or whatever, but are they having that real conversation at, at a senior level of, of you know, the, 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 the board the designs curriculums, are they really exposed to have this kind of synergy? What do you mm. think, Neil? Well, maybe I could just take it in a slightly different direction. I mean, going back to you, Harari says, do we need to learn geography? No? I think the fundamental challenge in terms of education is that the model that I was brought up with, the, the professor would profess, you know, would kind of disgorge his information and you sort of make notes and that's all gone. There's more information on YouTube, frankly, you know, and, uh, and, 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 you know, what we have to do is, is rethink that model, not as someone who's pedagogically telling someone what to do, but rather a kind of catalyst. You know, yeah. the term that Areti Mokopoulou uses is curiosity stimulator. I think someone on a journey with the student and trying to open mm. things up and, you know, point them in directions. I think this is the yeah. way that the future is guidance going to go. system. Yeah, it's mm. not anymore a teacher-student dynamic. I think the relationship yeah. needs to be redesigned. And I was guidance telling system. Rose exactly this. Educare, that means in Latin to, to lead someone. Right? Yes, it's, it's it, guidance. Guidance system. Yes. Yeah. Well, this has been enlightening. It's been super pleasurable to sit here with you. And I think we really touched upon uh, very few relevant topics that are very meaningful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank you Neil. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Terrific. What a delight to have such, such talented individuals have a conversation. Thank you for joining us on this episode of For Love and Design. We hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. If you want to keep exploring the world of design, innovation, art and creativity, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future episodes too. And don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest news and announcements. Until next time.